we look today at Exodus 16, we are continuing, as Hutch mentioned before the baptism, with this idea of God liberating, releasing, breaking the bonds of these people who had come to think of themselves only and exclusively as slaves, as dirt, as less than human, and God is in the process of making them a people that are his royal image bearers, people who reflect him, mirror him, radiate him on the earth. And so one of the things that he's done here 45 days after quite a tremendous escape, which you've heard us say, and if you haven't been here, the Israelites cried out in misery. God heard them. He was concerned about them. He raised up a deliverer called Moses, who was slow of speech. But God didn't care. He made Moses able to do all these kind of cool tricks that were actually quite terrifying to show Pharaoh who the Lord was and to show Pharaoh that the Lord was stronger than all the gods of the ancient Near East. He's stronger than the moon god. He's stronger than the god of the sun. He's stronger than the gods of the sea. Over all chaos, he is bigger. He is stronger. He is better. The Egyptians let themselves be plundered. Please get out of here, slave labor. Pharaoh chases them into the sea. He realizes he had a good economic situation going on and leaving his free labor to run meant his profit margins were going to diminish substantially. It was going to severely affect his public works projects. God opens up the sea, defeats the sea, which in the ancient Near East, the sea was a place of chaos and a place of fear, and God defeated the sea, opened it up. His people walked through on dry ground, and then the Egyptians came in, their best special forces. Charioteers, 600 of them and more. And God, with a snap of his divine fingers, hurls horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. That's who he is fighting for his people, rescuing his people, and now 45 days after that, 15 days into the second month after this massive escape from Egypt, we start to recognize something that we can relate to. Grumbling. The Israelites are hungry. Is there anybody in your life, and it might be you, is there anybody in your life where you think when they get agitated, bothered, angry, cantankerous, fussy, whiny, and you think, we got to get some food in that person? It might be your children and it might be your husband. But you know that invariably when people get hungry, whether they're hypoglycemic or not, when they get hungry, they start to fuss. When they are deprived, they, of course they, not we, start to complain and murmur. And it doesn't take long before the Israelites are doing just that very thing. And we learn something about this, and I want to tell it to you. As we look at the story in Exodus 16, I want you to realize this, that God is trying to do something. He's trying to introduce the Israelites to themselves so that he can introduce them to him. There's two introductions taking place in the desert 
And these are the kinds of things that happen in all the desert places, all the wilderness periods of our lives, which there are plenty. I hope you realize that throughout the ages, spiritual writers and authors of the New Testament would categorize even our lives as Christians now as a kind of wandering in the desert. We're not yet to the promised land. We're not yet to new earth. Jesus is reigning, but it doesn't appear to be the case. So we live in a time where you can wash your car and it would be all shiny and glistening and a bird will relieve himself on that car instantly just to make sure you know you're still in the wilderness, fella. And that's what your life is like. There's all kinds of desert times. There's all kinds of wilderness. Which means there's all kinds of grumbling. And these are the times when God introduces us to ourselves and introduces us to Him. Verse 3, the Israelites... Verse 2, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I've said that one of the things that God wants to do is introduce us to ourselves. He's introducing the Israelites to who they are so that he can show them who he is. And we're getting the eavesdrop on this so that we might be welcomed and greeted by our own selves, too. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what is the anatomy of a, a grumble. Because when you look at this passage, one of the things, the distinct characteristic of the Israelites, of God's people, people who have been rescued, people who have seen stunning miracles that they never would have conceived of, the thing that gets said about them over and over and again, they grumbled against Moses. In the evening, you will know that the Lord brought you out of Egypt because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? The Lord has heard your grumbling. Who are we? He says it again. You should grumble against us. I think Moses is trying to make a point. Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. The Lord says to Moses, I have heard your grumbling. The grumbling of the Israelites. The thing that Israelites do, apparently, the main thing about them in this particular situation is they grumble. And if you're not the kind of person who understands what that word means, we can go with the semantic range. They're, they're griping, they're complaining, they're whining. They have a low-grade or maybe a high-grade fever of discontent. And so if that's the main thing about them, and some of us might say, oh my goodness, maybe it's the main thing about me too. Let's look at what the anatomy of a grumble is. One of the things behind a grumble, when you become a person who's characterized by just frustration and agitation and anger, and I know a lot about this. I've written a dissertation on it with my life. Is it, first of all, the heart, the heart of grumbling, the heart of a grumbler, the heart of grumble is suspicious. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. When you're a grumbler, one thing you presume is omniscience. You know everything, and you know why what's happening is actually happening. And the Israelites, of course, know everything, and they know that really what 
Moses and Aaron are doing. What God is apparently up to is that he is the sinister fellow, a mad magician. And he loves it when people look like they're just about to be magnificently and wondrously and imaginatively delivered from the most atrocious enemy only to lead them out into a mass grave in the desert. He's going to have the whole earth open up and he's going to let them fall in the sinkhole. And God's going to be laughing all the way. (laughs) They're convinced. They're suspicious of God's good intentions, even though he's fought for them, even though he's delivered them, even though he has done everything that they could not do for themselves, providing a means of escape. And they are sure that he means them ill. They're doubting his good intentions. Now, so look, have you ever found yourself in a situation like this morning? Just start chronologically from the nearest time that you're aware of yourself to the latest. You found yourself in a situation where you were grumbling and you knew that God was just playing tricks on you. You ever said, God, why do you hate me so much? Why don't you do something? You start to think you've got to think, take things in your own hands. I can't listen to what God says. What does he know? Never that particularly directly. But underneath every grumble is this suspicion, and that's what's happening to the Israelites. They're doubting this very God who has just rescued them in the most dramatic kind of fashion. They're doubting his good intentions. You've brought us out here to starve to death. At the heart of every grumble, every time you grumble, come back and meet yourself and say, am I secretly being suspicious of God? It's really the central feature of the Christian life. Is God someone who can be trusted or not? Are his intentions good or not? You know the whole planet. The whole planet got blown to bits because the evil said to Adam and Eve when they were living their paradisal life. All he had to do was insinuate. Yeah, it's good. But God's got something way better behind his back and he's holding out on you. And that's all it takes. Casting suspicion on God and the whole universe. And this fabric got under Behind every grumble is suspiciousness. That's part of the anatomy of a grumble. And the next thing is, when you are a grumble, it starts to affect your mind and your thought process. The Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. You know, one of the things that happens to you when you start getting all ate up by complaining and griping is that you start to love and desire every time and place that you are not in. You know that about yourself? Here's what the Israelites are doing. They have just been rescued, and they are like an addict. My friend Jonathan St. Clair, who has helped me think about a lot of these things, he's a counselor as well, he says, these are the recollections of an addict. This is what happens if you've ever been addicted to anything, and most of us in here have. At some point, you look back and you say, oh, man, life was so much better when I was drinking. And you're temporarily insane. Of course, in those moments when you were drunk, it might have felt good. 
everything else about your life was falling apart. But you don't remember that. Selective amnesia. And that's what they're doing. You know the whole reason that God raised up Israelite, the Moses to deliver them? He was concerned about them because they were crying out to him. Now they're crying out against him. And their minds have been taken over by this grumbling effect that makes them discontented with every place that they're not. It was so much better. It's the message that we had. That lamb stew and bread. They forgot about the babies being killed. They were forgetting about being worked to the nub. They were forgetting about being called lazy and being treated brutally. All they remembered was those pots of lamb stew. Fixing to sell their birthright for a golden corral buffet. Now think about you. Do you find yourself afflicted with the sense that every place you're not must be better than where you are? For some of you, that's a glorification of the past. This is the kind of thing that gives way to the kind of cliche thing where older generations will say, well, these young kids today, they don't know how to do nothing. My day, we walked five miles in the snow uphill both ways with a piano on our backs. These kids today are soft. And you glorify the past, or you, or you glorify the future. Oh, it's going to be so much better. Some people dissolve their marriages because they know it's going to be so much better when they're not married to this loser that they got tricked into marrying. They're always wrong. But they dream about it. And you know, that's one of the things I think, and we've talked about this a little bit, that causes us to spend so much time with Mark Zuckerberg's creation. So much time checking a phone. So much time interesting, is that a verb? Because you know what your phone and your computer will permit you to do? You never have to be with the people you're with. Isn't it wonderful? You don't have to be with your demanding kids. You can kind of be with them and you can be everywhere else at once. You don't have to be in that boring meeting. You can be somewhere else at the same time. You don't have to be in your marriage. You can be in an alternative life. You don't have to be in the setting. You can be dreaming about fancy shoes and cool purses. That's what I dream about. But you see, the anatomy of a grumble is that your memory and your thoughts that get all fouled up and you start to think every place you're not is better than the place you are. And that's what happens to the Israelites. Desert stinks. Slavery is awesome because you get lamb stew. They don't remember the thing I've said a thousand times, and it's probably worth remembering because if you don't remember anything else, you could think, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side until you get there and you kill the grass. Because, see, the discontent walks around with you. It's part of being a grumble. You're always assessing things wrong. And that's what they're doing. They're assessing things wrong. They're not in accord with reality. That's what an addict is, and we're all addicts in our own way. 
They're addicted to their discontent, and they're convinced because they're suspicious of God that where they are at the moment is a mistake, and they know where they should be, and God sure don't. Do you recognize that in yourself? Do you hate your job every single day? Are there any people in here who wake up in the morning and say, I hate my life? I hate my life. Some of you hate your life. Or you at least act Your mind has been taken. You're suspicious of God. You're becoming to grumble. Your mind is being played tricks with. The other thing that happens is not just your heart, your mind, your thoughts. Your eyes, they get affected as well. Whenever you are a grumble, you start looking and blaming the wrong thing. As they're grumbling and they say to Moses and Aaron, you're the ones who brought us out here to die. They're being suspicious. It was so much better where we were. Their memories playing tricks on them. Moses and Aaron answered them this way. Hey, idiots! That's what they say in Hebrew. They don't really say that, but I think they might because there are places that talk about them getting mad and they just say they got mad. So, you've seen people get mad. Seen Will Muschamp on the sidelines of the University of Florida game. It looked like about to destroy someone. He says to them, "You realize, as you grumble, as you complain, as you share your discontent, you are not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. It's the Lord you're grumbling about. It's the Lord you're grumbling against." You are putting yourself in the position of fighting against the one who has just released you. Realize that. It's a, it's a reality check. A friend of mine says, it's a Holy Spirit alarm clock. Wake up! Now, they're probably the only people who've ever grumbled at something and been quite sure they know what the problem is. The problem here is that Moses and Aaron are dim-witted leaders. They don't know nothing. The problem is that the Israelites are so brilliant, they know where they need to be and how they need to be and what needs to be, and Moses and Aaron are fools. That's their perception. Moses and Aaron says, against the Lord that you're grumbling. Now, I'd ask you, think about a situation in your life right now that you hate. Think about of consternation and discontent in your life right now. Aren't you sure in moments when you get really agitated, aren't you sure what the problem is? The problem is my boss is idiot. The problem is I need to be doing a job that's way better than this one because I got skills. The problem is I need to be getting paid more. The problem is, we need to be in a bigger house. The problem is, I need a better car. The problem is, I need a better husband. The problem is, and on and on and on the list goes, I need a better family. I need to be better. I need something better. I need something that I don't have. And you know what? Has it ever occurred to you, hopefully, that underneath those that it might be that you are complaining against the God who put you in that spot because he wants you there? 
He wants you in that job. He wants you in that marriage. He wants you in that community. He wants you in that church. He wants you in that car. He wants you in that house. When you grumble against the things of your life, you're very often struggling against the God who rescues you, the God who has led you into the desert. You know, the Lord who brought them out of Egypt has brought them to the desert. They can't see it. And so they grumble and it affects their eyes. So if you're a grumble, it makes you have a suspicious heart. It makes your memory and your thinking all askew, and you want to be everywhere that you're not. It makes your eyes never really see the real cause behind things. You always got somebody to blame. It's always somebody else's fault. And you fail to see that maybe, just maybe, God has you there. And the other things that happen is the anatomy of a grumble is that you have these clenching, clutching hands that hold on. Here's what happens after the Lord says, I'm going to give them a rain shower of bread in the desert. I'm going to knock their socks off. We've never seen this thing It's going to be cool. We're going to wake up in the morning and be frosted flakes all over the ground. Honey made graham crackers for them to eat. This is going to come out of the sky. Whew. I'm going to, I'm going to probably meet and deliver to them. Birds fall from the sky right there so they can eat quail steaks. Well, here's the thing. But he says, here's what I want you to do. Only get enough for that day. Right? Each day, here's what's going to happen. Get enough for that day. If you keep more than for that day, it's going to become rancid and sour and, let's just say, maggoty. Bon appetit. And on the sixth day, you're going to get a double portion so that you can knock off the next day. You can rest. Okay? But here's the thing. When you are a grumbler, that you're already suspicious of God, and you know he's not actually going to do any good, and you know that his intentions are actually quite sinister, and you know that every place you are is not where you ought to be, and your mind has already been tricked with, and you don't see behind circumstances to the God who orchestrates circumstances, then course you're on your own and so what you're going to do is if there is the provision you're going to swoop that stuff up and hang on tight so here's what happened moses said to them no one is to keep any of it until morning however some of them paid no attention to moses and they kept part of it until morning and it was nasty that's what the original text says it was full of maggots and it began to smell, and so Moses was angry with them. This is not an abnormal response. Wouldn't you kind of hate to be in this position? Think about this. If God came to you today and said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a per diem. When you wake up in the morning, there's going to be a per diem in your mailbox. I mean, per day, right? It's going to be a cash envelope. And with it, you're going to be able to pay for everything you need that day. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, you got to zero out. You're already hating this story, aren't you? And you're going to go to bed, and all you've got 
to know that you're going to have provision tomorrow is my word. I'm just saying that when you wake up tomorrow, the per diem is going to be there again. You know what most of us would do? There would be like a, a run on Zoloft, Prozac. There would be this massive antidepressant, anti-anxiety cocktail that you'd all be mixing. But you couldn't live that way. None of us in here would like to live that way. you got to zero out at the end of every day and just trust God when you wake up in the morning, he's going to provide for that day. No, thank you, sir. I, I, no, sir, I don't think so. God doesn't mean that for modern people. I don't know if he means it for modern people. He gives us capital and all this kind of thing. But here's the thing. In the desert, the Israelites, they did this for 40 years. They didn't know at the time. Uh, 40 years, they got a chance to learn. My guess is if it happens enough, you get to see it. But boy, when you don't, when, you, when you're suspicious of God and you become a grumble, your hands, you start to clutch hard on the thing. You clutch hard onto your dreams. Because you know what life's supposed to be like. God does it. What does he know? You clutch hard onto your money. You can't give away any of it. You can't, you can't do anything but think about it because you need it. And no one else is looking out for you after all. You hang on tight to relationships. You hang on tight to everything. Because you're in this world. You know, it's interesting. One of the incredible gifts of this is as the Israelites go out to gather this man in the morning, we're told that those who gathered much didn't have too much, and those who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone just gathered as much as they needed, and God kind of evened it all out. It's kind of amazing. And the Apostle Paul, who we know for sure, the Keynesian capitalist, and there's no way he's a Marxist, says something like this that might cause you to be worried. He quotes this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 when he's talking about this generosity to the Macedonians. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you were hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And then there will be equality. As it is written, it sounds like he's talking about economic redistribution. I don't know. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now, if I'm reading this right, and I'm probably not, it sounds like Paul's saying, you cannot, need not be worried that you, if you are part of Christ's church, are going to give away too much money. Because if you have plenty and you give, if you're generous with your life, then all of a sudden you become poor? Well, then somebody else will have plenty. They'll help you. And that's troubling, isn't it? He can't mean that because we know he's a capitalist. He's for property rights. You see I'm being silly here? at least we're thinking about those. Paul has this very different idea of money and possessions and economics in the body of Christ, that we really are in this together. If you're part of the body of Christ, you're rich. Whether you personally have a large bank account or not, because you got brothers and sisters watching out. If you trust God. But if you don't trust God, then you act as a, like a cosmic orphan who's got no one with So you better hang on to everything. You find yourself grumbling a lot. You find yourself grumbling about lazy people, grumbling about people trying to get your money. 
ask yourself if you really, really, really believe that God's up to good in the world. If you find yourself unable to get rid of things, you might think you're a grumble. So you got this suspiciousness. The anatomy of a grumble is you got suspiciousness. You got your mind has had tricks played on it, and you want to be everywhere where you're not. You see wrong. You don't see the actual cause of the things. And you've got hands that hold on. And the other thing is you've got, Kramer would call them Jiminy legs. We'll just call them restless legs. Listen to this. So on the Sabbath day, the day of rest, they weren't supposed to go out and gather because God was going to provide any food. He was going to provide a double portion. And Moses says you can bake all you want, you can boil all you want, and then you'll be able to kick back and relax. It's the Sabbath for the Lord. We'll be able to eat and delight. And so we're told this. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind, if the Lord's giving you the Sabbath, he's not going to have food that day. He's giving you a double portion on Saturday so you can learn to rest. Now, if you're a grumble, and you're suspicious of God, and every place you are is not as good as any place you might be, and you can't see behind the causes of things, and you think everything depends on you, and so you hang on tight, you know what you're also going to do? You're also going to work and work and work and work and never be able to rest. You see, the Israelites, because they did not trust God, they did not know that He really could be counted, they didn't take His word very seriously. And so what they did is they went out on the Sabbath and there wasn't going to be anything. You know what God was trying to teach them? better than Pharaoh. You know what Pharaoh called them? Lazy. It struck me the other day when I was reading through the story in Exodus, because I know so many of you have this self-talk, where you hear people say, don't be lazy, don't be lazy, you're just lazy. I hear you say it to I, I hear you say it. I hear you say it. We're just lazy. I don't know many of you who are lazy. Pharaoh calls people lazy in the Bible. He calls them lazy when they're working them to the bone. they got to find their own straw. Their daily quota is not diminished they got to get all their own supplies, and they got to keep up their bread, uh, their brick production. And they say, please give us relief. They're working day to night, every day. And Pharaoh says, you're lazy. That's why you're whining. That's your pie hole. And you know what God says? The God who liberates, the God who's trying to transform slaves and teach them how to think of themselves and how to think of him, he says, you're a royal nation. You know what that means? You work for six days. And I'm going to provide you. Go out and you gather. You gather what I've provided. You go out and you gather. And then on the seventh day, you don't have to work. You must not work, which is the corollary of you don't have to work. Because you serve the great warrior king who's working all the time. That's supposed to be freeing today. It's supposed to be freeing for us as we overhear it. Dave Hansen says, we argue against the Sabbath command more than all the rest. That's the one command in the Decalogue, in the ten big ones, that most of us are quite uncomfortable with. Does that mean we can't? And you want to know a list. What can I not do? I need to work? I want to study? Am I Please don't miss the point. God wants you to be able to rest. He wants you to, as an image bearer, to be able to know that you work, but then you also rest. 
week, an elder in our congregation said this to me. In the hush. He's saying, sometimes I find myself when I overwork. When I'm working too much, it's usually being driven by some kind of insecurity. I'm trying to convince other people that I am something. I'm trying not to let somebody down. It might be an insecurity about provision. It might be an insecurity about people. You don't want people to think you're lazy. You don't want people to think you're falling down on the job. You don't want people to think you're a loser. And you know what? There's nothing more than our work that defines us. Our accomplishments. Whether if you're an athlete, if you're a student, if you're a mom, if you're a worker of some sort, you run a business, you work for someone. Is what defines you, gives you a sense of, I am something. And that's, if you think that, if that's the main thing about you, it will be terrifying to ever stop working. And that's what God wants you to you to feel the terror so that you know that you belong to the one who liberates you. Who you are is someone who's been rescued and redeemed by the God who has The God who provides the means of escape. The God who says, you are my royal image. That's the main thing about you. Not what you can produce. These are the things that God introduces the Israelites to. And he says, up against all of these anatomy of a grumble, the suspicious things you have, this mind trick where you want to be everywhere where you're not, not being able to see behind the causes of things and not realizing you're really just complaining against me, you're tendency to want to hoard, your tendency to want to work and work and never rest, here's what you'll meet up with when you grumble the Israelites grumble, 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 grumble. And here's what God says. When you grumble, there's bread from heaven for you to eat. There's bread from heaven for you to eat so that you I want you to be introduced to me. He's trying to form a people here. He's not so concerned about their dreams and what their life ought to be. He's trying to convince them who he is. He's trying to let them have a massive kind of detox to get Egypt out of them. And you know what we're told? We're told that in the desert, in Deuteronomy, after 40 years of this, God led you in the desert and he caused you to hunger. He caused you to hunger. He humbled you to test you to see if you follow him, to obey him, and he calls you to hunger so he could feed you with manna. You see, hunger has to do with God. Part of what he wants you to see is when you when you go to bed at night and you're worried about the next day, he wants you to think of God who provides for you and whose image you bear. When you wake up in the morning and you're famished and you eat a good breakfast. He wants you to think of God. Or when it's time for supper, and you're so excited, he wants you to think of God. And when he, as you walk around, he wants you to think of God. He provides for you. He causes you to hunger so that he can feed you. Hunger has to do with God. You realize it's one of the main things about us? Jim Gaffigan in one of his comedy specials says, you know the thing about vacations are? Vacations are just an opportunity to go someplace else to eat. You go to Disney World, 
stand on these long lines and go, well, I guess we better go to the concession stand and get something to eat, and then maybe after that we can get something, you know, get a bite to eat. We'll go stand in line, and then maybe we'll get something else to eat. Because there's nothing really more basic to your life than eating. you got to eat to live. And Jesus, John chapter 6, is told, Like Moses fed the Israelites. He's just walked on water like Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea. And he's talking to these grumblers. They're grumbling. They say, What sign will you give us? What miraculous sign will you give us so that we can believe you? Because Jesus just said, If you believe in me, you're never hungry again, you're never thirsty. They said, well, what sign will you give us? Moses, he gave us manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gave you the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And they start to grow. No. No. This is Joseph and Mary's boy. We know him. How can he say he came down from heaven? And Jesus says, stop your grumbling. <laughs> stop your grumbling. It's supposed to be funny. You're the only one who got it. Stop your grumbling. And you know what he says? No one can come to the Father who sent me unless the Father draws him. But whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I think those are the most precious verses in the whole Bible to me because you know what I am? I'm the kind of guy who's been called as a father, as a pastor, as a husband to find grace to my family, to my congregation, to my community. And you know what I embody better than anything? Grumbling. I don't teach my kids about grace. I teach them about bits of anger and judgment and meanness and cantankerousness. And the only hope I've got is that Jesus said, to me. Whatever grumbler comes to me is going to be met up with grace. Bread from heaven that you can eat and be nourished and energized and satisfied and live forever. I can't think of no matter what kind of state I come in, no matter how horrible I've been, and it's horrible, I come to the one who says, if you come to me, I'll never turn you And knowing that if I come to him, if you come to him, one of these things because the Father is wanting me first. He's wanting a grumbler. He's wanting a complainer. He's wanting somebody who's skeptical of his good intentions. Somebody who wants to be anywhere else other than where he is. Someone who's always misreading the signs. Someone who wants to hold on to things because they don't, they don't think he's in the world. Someone who thinks they have to work and work and work and work to be somebody. He's constantly doubting him and constantly forgetting him. And he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Wow. That's some grace in the desert. It might just annihilate your grumbling. If you come to him, if you will, 